This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, this is Stein Ingebrigtsen. I'm going to be talking about fever in the returning traveler. People are traveling more and more going to places where exotic diseases exist. When these people return home, they may have developed a fever. Typically, a fever is caused by a common illness such as tracheobronchitis, pneumonia, or a urinary tract infection. However, a fever in a returning traveler should raise suspicion for a severe or potentially life-threatening tropical infection. If the returned traveler seeks medical help then, in addition to the usual medical history, the clinician should obtain a careful travel history, a description of the traveler's accommodations, information about pre-travel immunizations or medical prophylaxis during travel, sexual history while traveling, and a list of exposures and risk factors. The extent and type of lymphadenopathy are also important diagnostic clues. As well, a fever with an altered mental status is an alarm that requires urgent evaluation and treatment. Malaria must be considered in patients who traveled even briefly within an endemic area. Of the 50 million people who travel annually from the industrialized world to the developing world, fever is a rather common complaint in the returned traveler. Up to 11% complain of febrile illness. While the majority of these people have infections that are common to the non-traveler, many types of infection will require that the differential diagnosis be expanded to include more exotic diagnoses such as malaria and dengue. A systematic approach to the return traveler with a fever is essential. Underlying medical health conditions and findings on the physical exam, such as rash and swollen lymph nodes, may reveal clues to the diagnosis. Furthermore, there are specific tests that should be considered in the returned febrile traveler. Here are some recommended rules to follow when examining a return traveler with a fever. First, always consider common causes such as urinary tract infections and upper respiratory tract infections. The fever may have nothing to do with the travel. Number two, most often a return traveler with a fever will have malaria. Second to that is typhoid fever, followed by dengue fever in that order. Additionally, rickettsial diseases are becoming frequent causes of fever in return travelers. Number three, if a patient is particularly ill or has an altered mental status, meningococcemia and viral hemorrhagic fever are also possible. Though highly uncommon, one should consider these as potential diagnoses as they are medical emergencies. Number four, knowing how long it took for a fever to develop will help with the diagnosis. There is a chart in the book which lists common diseases and the time it takes to develop a fever after exposure. For example, diseases that take less than 21 days to develop fever include East African trypanosomiasis, dengue fever, Japanese encephalitis, leptospirosis, malaria, meningococcemia, non-typhoid salmonella, the plague, typhoid fever, typhus, viral hemorrhagic fevers, and yellow fever. Diseases and infections that take more than 21 days to develop fever include acute HIV infection, acute systemic schistosomiasis, amoebic liver abscesses, Borreliosis or relapsing fever, brucellosis, leishmaniasis, malaria, rabies, tuberculosis, 
viral hepatitis including A, B, C, D, and E, and West African trypanosomiasis. Note that malaria is present on both sides of this list, both less than 21 days and more than 21 days. Knowing what diseases are endemic to an area is very important in determining the cause of a fever in a traveler. Symptoms such as generalized rash, body aches, headache, and fever are all significant but are nonspecific. The greatest challenge for a clinician is to identify the cause of fever without a focus. Therefore, critical elements in a patient's history would include the following. What were the dates and places of travel? Did they receive pre-travel prophylaxis? If so, what did they take? What was the quality of food and water where they traveled? What exposure did they have to insects, animals, or sick people? Did they have sexual intercourse with locals during travel? Did they become sick during travel? If so, what were the symptoms? Now, I'm gonna talk about some different types of fever. And first, uh, let's talk about dengue fever. Dengue fever has become a global disease. Nearly a thousand cases of dengue fever occur each year in travelers returning to the United States. This number is likely an underestimation of the actual number of cases, as many American physicians typically fail to recognize the disease. Like malaria, dengue fever is transmitted by mosquito. However, unlike malaria, it is a viral infection that is transmitted by the Aedes mosquito, which feeds mostly during the day. Four different serotypes exist. While infection by one serotype imparts lifelong immunity to that infecting serotype, it may create a subsequent hyperimmune response after infection by a different serotype. These hyperimmune responses may manifest as dengue hemorrhagic fever, causing bleeding that can be seen in the gums, vomit, or stool, making the patient critically ill. The typical incubation period of dengue fever is 3 to 10 days. If no hyperimmune response manifests, then it is followed by an abrupt onset of breakbone fever. Breakbone fever is a high fever with frontal headache, severe myalgia, retroorbital pain, classically worsened with lateral eye gaze. About half of all patients will have a sunburn-like rash that blanches with pressure. While the diagnosis is essentially a clinical one, leukopenia and thrombocytopenia are often seen on a CBC. A fourfold rise in antibody titer is the traditional method for confirmation, but is not specific to dengue fever and may react to other flaviviral infections. PCR and viral isolation diagnostic methods are becoming more common. Many health practitioners don't think of dengue fever as a cause of illness in someone from Africa. During 1960 to 2010, a total of 22 countries in Africa reported sporadic cases or outbreaks of dengue fever. 12 other countries in Africa reported dengue fever only in travelers. The presence of disease and high prevalence of antibodies to dengue virus in limited serological surveys suggest endemic dengue virus infection in all or many parts of Africa. Dengue is likely under-recognized and under-reported in Africa because of low awareness by healthcare providers other prevalent febrile illnesses, and lack of diagnostic testing and systematic surveillance. Next up, we'll talk about typhoid fever. Most enteric fever, typhoid and paratyphoid, in cases worldwide are typhoid fever. As a result of safer food and water, typhoid fever cases in developed countries are not common. Worldwide, however, 16 million cases of typhoid fever occur annually 
resulting in 600,000 deaths. Patients with typhoid fever look similar to those with malaria. After an incubation period of 3 to 60 days, the first manifestations of typhoid fever are fever and malaise. Fever increases in a stepwise fashion. Associated symptoms include anorexia, vomiting, abdominal pain. Diarrhea is more likely in children, whereas constipation is more likely in adults. Signs of typhoid fever include rose spots, hepatosplenomegaly, and fever spikes. Rose spots, which appear in fair-skinned persons, are maculopapular, pink-colored lesions of the trunk and the body. These spots typically only occur in 5-30% to of patients. Laboratory tests are nonspecific. Findings include leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or an elevated C-reactive protein level, uh, in addition to elevated liver enzyme levels. Typhoid fever should be suspected in patients with a spiking fever and leukopenia who have visited a typhoid endemic area and who have not received a typhoid fever vaccination. Blood cultures are positive in only about 40% to 60% of patients. Sometimes urine or stool cultures are positive for S-typhi when blood cultures are negative. The most sensitive way to collect S-typhi is by bone marrow culture, though rarely used in routine clinical practice. There's a map in the book that shows the distribution of typhoid fever throughout the world. As mentioned earlier, typhoid fever is not common in developed countries such as Western Europe and North America. For countries in South America, Africa, and Southern Asia, it is still very prevalent. Salmonella typhi infections are usually acquired via the food chain. A salmonella case is an, ex is an excellent example of how expatriate families visiting their homeland may not believe they can contract a tropical infection. S. typhi is treated with amoxicillin. While initially sensitive to amoxicillin, S. typhi has become increasingly resistant to it and can relapse after treatment. Amoxicillin is associated with relapse in about 4-8% of patients. In fact, resistance to amoxicillin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is common, and ciprofloxacin resistance is becoming more common. Alternatives for oral therapy include cefixine or azithromycin. Ciprofloxacin has been the drug of choice for empiric typhoid fever treatment. However, local fluoroquinolone resistance is high, such as in the Indian subcontinent. Also, fluoroquinolones have untoward side effects, and clinicians should use them only if other antibiotics are not available or are ineffective. Azithromycin is highly effective for enteric fever. For prevention when traveling, it is usually safe to consume bottled water, hot cooked food, dry food, and fruits and vegetables that can be peeled. Tap water, ice, fresh juices, salads, unpasteurized daily products, uncooked sauces and toppings, open buffets, and food sold by street vendors should be avoided. Now, moving on to malaria. Malaria should be suspected first in all returning travelers. If these patients present with a spiking fever, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and they confirm they visited a malaria endemic area and did not take prophylaxis, they are very likely to have malaria. Each year, there are more than 250 million cases of malaria worldwide. Patients with low parasitemia may need multiple blood smears to produce a positive result. In the developing world, if malaria blood smears cannot be reliably performed, then rapid diagnostic tests that detect specific circulating malaria antigens may be used. Malaria was, and remains, 
the most devastating disease of all time. Five species of Plasmodium can infect humans. The first four are P. falciparum, P. vivax, P. malariae, and P. ovale. A fifth Plasmodium species, Plasmodium nolesi, is an emerging human pathogen. Infection with P. nolesi may occur following exposure to a Mackay monkeys in Southeast Asia. As well, P. ovale has recently been shown by genetic methods to consist of two subspecies, P. ovale curtisi and P. ovale wallacher. P. falciparum is the most dangerous type of malaria. It's also the most common species that infects humans and is the only malaria species that causes fulminate disease due to high parasitemia. This has the ability to bind up to 80% of all red blood cells, causing widespread deformation that clogs capillaries and the microcirculation. Malaria is acquired by humans when bitten by the Anopheles mosquito. Anopheles mosquitoes are dusk to dawn feeders. When the bite occurs, the malaria sporozoites travel from the mosquito to the human liver. Here they develop into merozoites and are released into the blood weeks or months later. When they are released into the blood, the merozoites feed on hemoglobin and rupture the red blood cells in 48 hours for P. falciparum, P. vivax, P. ovale, and P. nolesi, or in 72 hours for P. malariae. P. vivax and P. ovale can remain latent in the liver for months or years, and P. malariae can remain dormant in red blood cells for months or years also. When red blood cells rupture, fever spikes occur. If the rupture happens synchronously, then there would be a fever recurring every third day or a fever recurring every fourth day. However, red blood cell rupture usually occurs asynchronously and the fever spikes are typically random. It is essential for travelers to know that taking malaria pills will not prevent a person from getting malaria. If a mosquito that has malaria in it bites a human, the parasite will enter the victim instantly, 100% of the time. That traveler has malaria. The medicine itself only helps the person from getting it sick. Becoming infected with malaria and becoming ill with the disease are two different things. The person may or may not become sick depending on several factors, including chemoprophylaxis. More than 75% of travelers do not take adequate precautions. The only way for a traveler to prevent becoming infected with malaria is to avoid being bitten. Deep mosquito repellents are effective in preventing mosquitoes from biting. Persons should use a repellent that contains at least 30% deep. People living in malaria endemic countries develop partial immunity. However, these people immigrate to a non-malarial area. This, Im this immunity rapidly wanes. Now, chikungunya. Chikungunya is a crippling virus. And in one decade, it has gone from an obscure tropical ailment to an international threat, causing more than 3 million infections worldwide. The virus has established itself in Latin America and the Caribbean and is now moving to cooler climates. Chikungunya rarely, rarely kills its victims, but it is a terrible disease. Symptoms include high fever, profound joint pain, chills, headaches, and these typically linger for about a week. Many patients later develop severe joint pain that can recur for months or years. In East Africa, where the virus was first identified in 1952, chikungunya in the Makonde language means to walk bent over or to become contorted, a reference to the stooping posture of many sufferers. Chikungunya virus is transmitted to people by mosquitoes. 
The most common symptoms of chikungunya virus infection are fever and severe joint pain. There is no vaccine to prevent or medicine to treat chikungunya. Travelers can protect themselves best by avoiding mosquito bites when traveling to countries with chikungunya virus using insect repellent. Wear long sleeves and pants and stay in places with air conditioning or that use window and door screens. DEET has been proven to be the best chemical to repel the bites of the mosquito. Now, leptospirosis. Leptospirosis is a bacterial disease that affects both humans and animals. It occurs worldwide within rural and urban areas and in temperate and tropical climates. The early stages of the disease may include high fever, severe headache, muscle pain, chills, redness in the eyes, abdominal pain, jaundice, hemorrhages in the skin and mucous membranes, including those in the lungs. Patients can get diarrhea and a rash. Animals infected with the spirochetes of the genus Leptospira shed the bacteria through their urine intermittently or continuously through their lives. Human infection occurs through direct contact with the urine of infected animals or by contact with a urine-contaminated environment such as surface water, soil, sand, and plants. Walking a beach barefoot can cause infection. The leptospheres can gain entry through cuts and abrasions in the skin and mucous membranes of the eyes, nose, and mouth. Human-to-human -human transmission only occurs rarely. For the severe form of leptospirosis, antimicrobial therapy is recommended. However, its use is controversial for the, for the mild form of leptospirosis. A Cochrane review found insufficient evidence to advocate for or against the use of antibiotics in the therapy for leptospirosis. If used, antibiotics such as doxycycline, ampicillin, or amoxicillin should be initiated as soon as the diagnosis is made. Now on to rickettsial diseases. Rickettsial diseases are globally distributed arthropod-borne illnesses that are becoming increasingly important sources of fever in the return to traveler. This group of diseases caused by intracellular gram-negative bacteria includes Mediterranean spotted fever, African tick typhus, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Each syndrome may have some unique feature features of presentation, but most share some common symptoms including fever, headache, malaise, nausea, vomiting, and a rash. Often there is an eschar at the site of the tick bite. Serologic testing is usually required to confirm the diagnosis. The treatment of choice is generally doxycycline. Now, schistosomiasis. Schistosomiasis, also known as bilharzia, is a disease caused by parasitic worms. More than 200 million people are infected worldwide. In terms of impact, this disease is second only to malaria as the most devastating parasitic disease. The parasites that cause schistosomiasis live in certain types of freshwater snails. You can become infected when your skin comes in contact with contaminated fresh water. It is likely to occur 21 days after returning home from travel because of, because of its prolonged incubation of one to two months. Most people have no symptoms when they are first infected. However, within days after becoming infected, they may develop a rash or itchy skin. Within one to two months of infection, people develop symptoms including fever, abdominal pain, an enlarged liver, blood in the stool or blood in the urine, and problems passing urine. Now, yellow fever. Yellow fever is an acute viral disease. In most cases, symptoms include fever, chills, loss of appetite, nausea, headaches, muscle pains, particularly in the back. Symptoms typically improve within five days. In some people, within a day of improvement, the fever comes back, abdominal pain occurs, 
and liver damage begins causing yellow skin. If this occurs, the risk of bleeding and kidney problems increases. The yellow fever virus causes the disease in the 80s Aegypti mosquito spreads it. Yellow fever causes 200,000 infections and 30,000 deaths every year, with nearly 90% of these occurring in Africa. Almost 1 billion people live in an area of the world where the disease is common. It is common in tropical regions in South America and Africa, but not in Asia. The number of cases of yellow fever has been increasing. Thankfully, a safe and effective vaccine against yellow fever does exist. Travelers should be vaccinated against yellow fever when they travel to countries where it is endemic. Yellow fever remains endemic in West Africa, South America. Many countries in these endemic areas, such as Gambia and Venezuela, do not require travelers to undergo yellow fever vaccination. International guidelines for travelers strongly recommend vaccination against yellow fever for persons traveling to these countries, but general practitioners and travel agencies may advise against vaccinations because the countries themselves do not require it. Moving on to Ebola and other hemorrhagic viruses. Ebola viruses are very deadly. If a patient has been in a country where Ebola or other hemorrhagic viruses are at risk and they present with a fever, isolate that patient and call the local health department. Isolation is the first important step in the management of these types of diseases. Assess the patient for international travel and for having been in countries within the last 21 days where Ebola is known to exist, even, even if the risk is low. Symptoms of Ebola include a fever greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees centigrade, severe headache, muscle pain, weakness, fatigue, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and unexplained hemorrhaging. Healthcare personnel are exposed to the Ebola virus by touching a patient's body fluids, contaminated medical supplies and equipment, or contaminated environmental surfaces. Splashes to unprotected mucous membranes, for example, the eyes, nose, and mouth, are particularly hazardous. Procedures that may increase environmental contamination with infectious material or create aerosols should be minimized. And that does it for Fever and a Traveler. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And I hope you keep listening to our podcast.